Graham Lynch and welcome to Comms Day Live. Today we'll be talking with New Street Research and taking a look at the investment and financial climate for telecoms and not just through the prism of COVID. We're also going to speak with Telsite who have some data out on where the smartphone market has been this year and where it's heading as we come towards Christmas as well as some findings on where wearables and smart glasses are at. We'll also be taking a look at the ACCC's move on app stores and Tilstra's concerns about the 5G supply chain. But first, we'll take a look at Optus's new broadband plans, as well as private LTE in the mining sector with Simon Ducks. Simon Ducks, the Chief Editor of Communications Day, looking at the week that was. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. How are you today? Pretty good, actually. It's been a busy week, but uh, there's uh, plenty of news to keep us busy. Good stuff. Now, um, one company that's been pretty busy this week is Optus, who announced some pretty exciting new 5G internet plans. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, Graham. Uh, It was uh, really interesting, and make no mistake, although they were uh, fairly coy about calling these uh, aggressive pricing, uh, they really are. Uh, the two bundles, an entry-level bundle, which will go directly against uh, comparative MBN broadband services, and an entertainer bundle, which will, uh, with some sport thrown in and a nice entertainment package together, which will go up against some of the other competitors in the marketplace who are also offering things uh, such as Telstra and Foxtel. Okay. Now, they seem... Um pitched uh, quite directly against the Telstra bundles that bundle Telstra TV and Foxtel and so on. How do they compare both on content and on price? Well, the entertainer uh, bundle, you're looking at uh, $90. It's uncapped. And uh, Optus reckon that you're going to be getting at least 214 megabits per second. So speeds are very good. Optus are not worried about the capacity side. And when you look at the actual package there, you've got... Optus Sport, a Fetch Mighty Box, uh, it's got about 45 or so channels uh, plus premium string uh, entertainment as well. And the key thing with that is that you're essentially getting an extra $35 worth of uh, uh, content, if you like, that is going to be quite attractive to people because, you know, when you look at um, Telstra's MBN 50 packages to get Foxtel Sports, for example, you're starting uh, those sort of prices at around $120, Okay, now, what kind of content can I get on the Optus service? Like, specifically, what does Fetch offer and what can I watch on Optus Sport? So, uh, at the moment, uh, Optus Sport is uh, predominantly a football channel. Uh, the interesting thing uh, that this, these new uh, packages uh, throw a new light on what may or may not happen with the upcoming rugby rights as well. In terms of the entertainment side, uh, it's, we're not talking lightweight channels. You get a really good mix of uh, streamed content, uh, uh, but you also get good channels such as ESPN, Comedy Central, MTV... Discovery, National Geographic, CN and uh, CNN, I should say, and uh, CBBS, Nickelodeon for the kids as well. Yeah, so pretty good stuff. Okay, it seems like Optus might be on a winner here. I think so. It's going to be uh, interesting to see uh, how the market reacts to that, and they've also uh, looking at um, uh, doing some interesting stuff with uh, resellers as well, which shows that there's definitely some margin in there for uh, Optus to play around with. 
Okay, now I wanted to move on to another um, story you wrote this week. And that was about uh, LTE in the mining sector. Um, Now, you spoke with an executive at Nokia who told you that half of the dedicated LTE networks for mining companies across the world are in Australia. That's right, Graham. It's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Nokia's global head of mining, Gary Conway, who uh, himself is an Aussie, was literally taking me underneath what's going on there uh, regarding private LTE and just how uh, the ACMA's spectrum policy is driving innovation that other jurisdictions outside Australia are learning from and are deploying as well. And that's been quite interesting originally with 1800 megahertz. And the big one coming up soon will be 3.4 to 4.2 gigahertz and what happens there. Now, Nokia had quite a bit to say um, about how the the spectrum regime in Australia was quite superior to that in the rest of the world, and that's part of the reason why there's been such a proliferation of these networks here. Very much so, and uh, the key thing with that is uh, it continues uh, to be that way uh, because one of the things we talked about was the new apparatus license for area-wide licensing, or AWLs, And uh, there is a consultation going on at the moment for those, but it's going to be really, really interesting to see how uh, they shape up because, again, that's going to give people geographically specific chunks of spectrum that they can use and utilise outside the big metro areas uh, if deployed correctly. And what's the appeal of having a private LCE network over other options, other types of radio platforms or, or using public resources? The key thing that uh, came out from the discussions was the fact that having a licensed spectrum gives you certainty. And uh, we did discuss uh, in depth uh, a lot of stuff around Wi-Fi 6 and where that's heading. And also there are some proprietary uh, uh, technologies in mining, such as automated uh, vehicles from companies like Rajant and so on. But the key thing uh, that came out of it was the fact that having licensed spectrum gives you that certainty that you're not going to have a uh, best effort, which is what Wi-Fi may give you, being unlicensed and having traffic potentially interfering. And I had an interesting example from Alan Seary at Okura who told me about a particular site where an official at a mine had set up a Wi-Fi network on two buildings and uh, it managed to stop uh, production of the big multi-million dollar trucks for a couple of days. And you can imagine, you know, the ramifications in the back of that. And that's why the miners are really keen uh, to look at uh, the licensed regime as opposed to unlicensed, and that's why what ACMA does next is going to be really, really critical. Okay, on that note, thanks very much for joining us today, Simon. Thanks again, Graham. You're on Comms Day Live, and we're looking at the week that was with Comms Day Executive Editor Rowan Pearce. Welcome, Rowan. Hi, Graham. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good, actually. I'm pretty good. Certainly a lot better than they probably are at Google and Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Being targeted by the uh, Australian Competition and Consumer Commission this week. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I guess this is kind of um, this, this is interesting actually because it's another product of the. Um, ACCC's digital platform inquiry, essentially. So the ACCC has launched a new inquiry, which is looking at 
the kind of app store dominance in particular of Apple and Google, which between them have a very tight grip on the mobile device operating system market, obviously. And so the ACCC is looking at a whole range of associated issues ranging from things like, um, for example, in-app payment rules, the kind of terms and conditions if you want to host an app on their app stores, and also the kind of, uh, I guess, the measures in place to protect consumers. Well, I guess, I guess one of the big issues is um, whether Google and Apple have a, a style of de facto control of the success or otherwise of an app in terms of its placement in the store. Is that right? Yeah, so that, that's, that's one area that the ACCC has asked some specific questions um, about, which is you know the ranking and display of apps. And obviously that just has a huge impact on whether an app is successful or not. So Apple and Google, as well as actually producing these marketplaces, they also produce their own apps. And so in a kind of similar analogy to how um, you know, the ACCC is already looking at whether Google search prefers Google's products, they're also going to be looking at whether uh, Google and Apple give preferential treatment to their own apps. Um, and I guess another issue is how they use the data they obtain on app users, uh, perhaps to favour their own services. Like, I think the, the key thing with this one is really the extent to which um, you know, consumers are handing over masses of data, um, in some cases unwittingly, without any real uh, say in how it could be used. But I think if you look, um, you look elsewhere too, there is that... Um, that broader kind of piece of work um, occupying the, the digital platforms unit at, um, at the ACCC, which is looking at, like, you know, uh, uh, with the media bargaining code, for example, how that data is used, who gets control of it, and, and how you can use that to, you know, bolster the success or otherwise of your products. Uh, I guess, uh, though, at the end of the day, Australia is just 1.2% of the world economy. And just as we're seeing with the, um, the mooted plan to make them pay for news... Surely, if the ACCC becomes an irritant uh, to, to Google and Facebook, they'll just deny Australians access to the app stores. Well, well, yeah, obviously, I think like you know, Google and Facebook have both threatened to you know stop people from using their platforms to. Well, in Facebook's case, to they've said you know we won't let people share news links if they're in Australia, and Google said we will take Australian publications off Google News. But I think it gets a bit more complicated with the kind of like the Google and um, Apple app stores because you're dealing with like a broader ecosystem of, I guess, like handset makers. And so if, if for example, Google is like, well, we're not going to offer Google Play in Australia, what does that mean for all the other Android handset makers? And are they just, is it just going to drive them towards, you know, I mean, Samsung and Amazon, for example, have their own app stores. Is it going to drive more people towards that? So I think it's a slightly more complicated issue for Google. I guess to put that all in some perspective, um, Facebook's market capitalization is 800 billion US dollars. Alphabet, the owner of Google, their market cap is 1 trillion US dollars, and the Australian GDP is 1.3 trillion. Uh, less than both of them combined. And if I understand from the latest GDP figures, shrinking pretty fast right now. Although I would add something to that, which is um, uh, we were talking about this before actually, is you know, the, the ACCC is pushing for more kind of like a transnational cooperation with other competition regulators. So it's possibly not the only, you know, competition regulator casting its eye over these issues. Okay, um, we'll move on. Um, now, you had a very interesting report in Comsay this week regarding Telstra CEO Andy Penn, and he's lamenting what's been happening in the 5G supply chain. Uh, what did he have to say? 
Yeah, look, basically, Andy Penn was just saying that, you know, there's an issue around supply chain diversity with 5G. So he compared it to the state of the 4G radio access market, where he was like, well, there are about a dozen vendors of radio access gear. And now with 5G, he, there's what he's described as four and a half with, um, with Samsung being the half. And on top of that, obviously, in Australia, we have the Huawei and ZTE band, which then really kind of narrows down the options that telcos have in terms of sourcing 5G gear. Okay, um, that said, Telstra has never actually used Huawei or CGE to the best of my knowledge. So why does it see an issue here? I, I guess it's, it's a thing of like, well, more vendors in the marketplace is always going to add a certain amount of competitive pressure. I mean, uh, like in Australia, obviously you look at Optus, which has gone with a kind of multi-vendor approach for 5G, but they only really had two to choose from at the time, which is not ideal in terms of uh, necessarily like playing them off against each other. I guess um, Samsung certainly showed it was more than half a vendor, <laughs> as Andy described them this week, uh, with a big uh, $9 billion, that's in Australian dollars, tender win with Verizon for 5G. Yeah, obviously, like a, a massive, massive win for Samsung. And I, I guess, like Andy was making the point that, you know, Samsung is still relatively new to this uh, particular market. And actually, as, as far as I'm aware, anyway, hasn't done anything in that space in Australia. Although they do, they do have a deal with Spark in New Zealand. And I guess, um, like, uh, I think the Verizon deal could actually really be a watershed moment because it is just so, it's like such a massive win for Samsung. And so maybe it is going to kind of inject a bit more competitive tension into the market. Okay, on that note, thanks for joining us, Ryan. Cheers, Graham. We've got Ian Martin from New Street Research on the line. Uh, welcome, Ian. Hello, Graham. You put out some very interesting analysis this week, your forecast for 2021. What, what did uh, strike me was that there's a lot of things going on that aren't COVID-related, <laughs> and, and it's important to remember that in these times. And you started yeah. off with an analysis on mobile where, where you identify some COVID impacts, but also some broader impacts on the mobile sector as well. Can you, can you take us through those? Sure. I mean, COVID's still very important in the market's mind, but it is a relatively short-term hit. And I think in the telecom sector, I think most of my clients and investors see that, you know, there's a fairly finite impact, so long as it's not ongoing. Um, and instead of looking through that to the other factors that affect the mobile market, and, and mobile is probably the most important single part of the telecom sector, because it's the biggest driver of value for Telstra, Optus and TPG uh, Vodafone. Uh, and the main issue there is that we've had three or four years of very intense competition, but particularly between Telstra and Optus. And I think knowing that Vodafone was relatively capacity constrained, uh, they've gone at it quite hard to get customers and it's been successful in a sense. They've moved a lot of the customers from prepaid to postpaid contracts and we've seen you know, good growth in customer numbers for both of those two carriers. We tend to get this cycle going in telecoms, but particularly where you know a new generation of technology comes through where the carriers spend quite highly on network infrastructure for two or three or four years which both Telstra and Optus have done. And then to, in order to get a return on that investment, they, they try and win customers. And that's the, the part of the cycle where we're now uh, exiting possibly um, and moving into a part where the carrier's in saying, well, now we've got these customers, how do we best earn a return from them? 
Um, and that's no longer with the same degree of fierce price competition, which has driven average revenues down quite considerably. Uh, it may not mean price increases, although we did see some from Telstra in July, but at least some uh, maintenance of pricing, uh, less promotions and so on, uh, and, and a wash through of some of the changes that went through last year may have seen average revenues increase, at least if it wasn't for COVID. Uh, and now the market's thinking, well, will they go up uh, next year? Will average revenue go up next year and start to lift mobile service revenue, mobile earnings and return on invested capital and so on? Or, or do we possibly get another round of competition because Vodafone's back in the game with more capacity and, and they, of course, lost the market share when they were capacity constrained and will they lead the market into a new round of price competition? So that's the point we're at at the moment and uh, particularly going into the Christmas period, which tends to be quite competitive. That's where the eyes of the market are at the moment in terms of what happens to mobile pricing. Now, it, you made some other comments in your analysis, which which I found fascinating. And that was that outside of mobile, there's actually very limited opportunities for investors in Australia to invest in telecoms infrastructure. Can, can you elaborate about those thoughts? Yeah, well, so globally, we're seeing quite a big swing to uh, infrastructure investment, particularly from the large superannuation funds that have uh, you know, defined benefit obligations and so on. The market is re-rating infrastructure quite considerably because of changes in the infrastructure models and particularly because of... Uh, change in benchmark rates and interest rates and so on. So we have seen multiples paid for infrastructure go up uh, quite considerably in other markets and, and in particular one market I look at is New Zealand and, and the multiples paid for chorus have gone up considerably as part of this global trend. We don't get much of that in Australia because of the public policy investment in, in NBN. There isn't a lot of telco infrastructure around uh, in, in the Australian market a few data centre operators, Macquarie Telecom's been re-rated enormously, for instance, as it's moved from being a retail service provider in telecoms to a data centre operator, Next DC, and um, perhaps some of the smaller um, fibre operators have benefited from that. But, um, you know, with the bulk of investment infrastructure tied up in the NBN and in um, in the uh, mobile towers at Telstra and Optizone, there's not a lot of, uh, of separately listed infrastructure in the telecom sector in Australia. Okay, now you mentioned MBN there as being the reason for that. Um, there's a lot of talk about MBN. Uh, now it's completed the core rollout, moving on to network upgrades. What's your view on what should or will happen there? Well, well clearly there's an issue with the uh, with the capacity and service capability of that network. Uh, the statement of expectations requires a minimum of 25 megabits per second, for instance, and... Um, I think as we got to the end of completion, I think the you know the, the view of policymakers is that's probably not enough. It might be a bit of an issue if uh, the government moved to uh, complete the NB, you know formally announce the completion of the NBN and move towards a sale. I think there would be a lot of pushback uh, in policy terms to um, selling the NBN in its current form without uh, at, at least an upgrade path, if not the upgrade itself completed. So I think. And I think NBN itself gave pretty good hints that we're looking at an upgrade plan and a future strategy uh, sometime later this year. Um, question is, how do we fund that? I mean, assuming it's got to be done, and, and um, I think from an NBN point of view on commercial grounds, I think there's a commercial case for it, but how does it get funded? And inevitably, I think that's going to mean that NBN will need to continue to 
operate the same pricing structure it has for the last few years with the that CBC price component. That's very important for its cash flow. Uh, in a sense, I compare this to the um, you know to the lockdown we've gone through in Victoria with the uh, to respond to the COVID uh, pandemic. You know, we we went through uh, a lockdown for six or eight weeks or so. Come out of that only to find that it's going to be carrying on for another uh, another several weeks. Um, similarly, with the NBN, we've had that CBC, and I think the industry accommodated the need for NBN to have those capacity arrangements in place and that that model in place in 2014 in order to complete the, the build. Now we've got to the end of that completion, only to find that the uh, CBC model and the pricing around that will continue in order to pay for the upgrade. Um, you know, this is a little bit speculative, I guess, until we actually see that plan. But uh, I think it's inevitable that in order to pay for that, um, we'll, we'll see that CBC continue for another for another few years. Now, now, related to an MBN upgrade is what you describe as a trend of digital densification. Um, can you explain what you mean by that and why it's needed for the digital economy? Yes, yeah, so we've seen uh, you know massive changes in the economy over the last twenty years as internet's rolled out, and particularly sectors like media, much of retail and, and finance have moved into a digital format, and that's made an enormous difference to the the productivity and effectiveness of those industries. We're now seeing that same same model or a very similar model roll out to other parts of the economy. A lot of manufacturing is moving into digital format. Um, healthcare sector is becoming a, a digital. A, a, a digital um, a digital sector in a lot of aspects um, and as that model changes in those industries and, and uh, the demand arrangements change the supply arrangements change we see more data and more more service provision moving into a digital format it requires an infrastructure to uh, you know to deal with that more effectively with many more access points with high-speed uh, transmission connections and so on. And so inevitably we get um, this trend towards more uh, uh, fibre connections and wireless connections deeper into the network to handle those larger volumes of capacity. We get this change in network structure so that that volume of information can be managed more effectively, particularly where there's remote monitoring and remote service provision and so on. Um, and, and that is requires quite a long-term change, I think, in the way uh, networks are provided and, and that infrastructure is rolled out, including both you know, fibre from the NBN and, and other players, as well as, um, as well as wireless infrastructure. So uh, I think one of the important considerations in that is what are the arrangements between NBN and those private sector providers um, you know, for NBN to play a role in, in fibre backhaul, maybe even fibre, fibre fronthaul, and uh, where the industry provides that for, for, its, for itself. Yeah, hopefully we'll get some answers on that in coming months. Ian Martin, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Graham. Okay, we're speaking with Fode Vidagi, who's the Managing Director of Telsite, they just put out their Australian smartphone and wearable devices market study for 2020 to 2024 this week. Some very, very interesting findings and forecasts. Welcome to Comms Day Live, Fode. Thanks for having me, Graham. Now, first of all, some pretty interesting results in terms of 
where smartphone sales have been going over the past half or so. Not very good news for Huawei, and not very good news overall, I guess. Look, I think it's in the context of a slowing um, um, economy. I think the, the smartphone market has done reasonably well. Um, you know, we've seen a, an economic de- decline of 7%, but the smartphone market only fell 5% in the first half. So comparatively speaking, um, it probably did uh, reasonably well uh, given the lockdowns and, and the massive disruptions to, to everyday life. I think the, the, the upshot has been that we've seen um, consumers a lot more dependent on their smartphones. So despite the unemployment, despite maybe tougher economic conditions, people are using their phones more and they're becoming much more dependent on it. And this is driving the replacement cycle when devices get a little bit old. And we know a lot of Australians are sticking to their older handsets for so much longer. So in many respects, um, despite the challenges, we are in a bit of an upgrade cycle, particularly for Apple users right now, which we think will extend um, later into the year with the 5G iPhone release. Yep. Okay. So um, on that, uh, we've got Christmas coming up, and obviously we're in unusual times of the pandemic. What, what type of impact do you think that will have on smartphone sales heading into Christmas? It's interesting because we we think that the market will actually decline a little bit further in this second half, notwithstanding the the impact of COVID in the first half was really from you know, March, April onwards. So we think that the the COVID impact will continue into the second half of this year. Um, particularly um, heavy on, on Victoria, as you can imagine, with extended lockdowns. Um, but I guess what we're seeing is, um, as I said, the dependency increasing on handsets, and we're seeing a lot of new products um, potentially coming to market from, from Apple uh, in the second half towards Christmas. A new Apple Watch, for example, might spur the, the, the wearables market uh, in the smartwatch space, uh, which had a slower first half compared to fitness bands. Um, but I think overall, we, we expect the market to slow down a little bit on handsets, um, down to about 5% decline. Okay, it's interesting you mentioned wearables there, because uh, you, you actually found a pretty remarkable growth in wearables um, over the first half of the year. 39%, uh, certainly doing a lot better than smartphones. Yeah, and really made up from two categories. Uh, as I sort of alluded to, smartwatches were flat. Um, first half, but we saw a lot of first-time fitness band buyers. Uh, so the smart fitness bands such as Fitbits and others by Garmin and others, um, those uh, had a bit of a renaissance in the first half. I think as a lot of people turned to health and fitness to get them through the, the lockdown period. And we've also seen a, a mini boom in what we call smart hearables, which are made up of these wireless uh, headphones um, or wireless earbuds that you know utilize smart speaker technology such as you know Google Assistant um, or Apple Siri um, a real big boom in, in the sales of those products and we think a lot of that was driven by uh, the boom in uh, uh, video conferencing and work from home where people are you know becoming again reliant on uh, accessories uh, to do their job okay now the other interesting um, part of your survey that got my attention what was that you're predicting a bit of an uptick for smart glasses? I know that they got a lot of attention a couple of years back and then went away pretty quickly, but you're forecasting some pretty decent sales for them over the next year. Well, look, I guess we're taking a punt in that we think that smart glasses have got some potential coming up. You know, we're not seeing a lot of products in the market right now. There's some interesting things coming out of China 
there's some interesting VR and AI headsets, for example. But what, what we know behind the scenes is the technology is advancing rapidly. We're seeing the miniaturization of much of the technology that can go into smart glasses. We're seeing the arrival of LiDAR detectors as well in smartphones, potentially. Um, the new Apple uh, iPhone 12 is expected to have a LiDAR sensor. Um, the, the, the latest uh, uh, iPad Pro had a LiDAR sensor in it, and we're seeing advances in augmented reality technology, um, notwithstanding from things such as gaming, uh, which has been a big user of augmented reality, thinking of uh, Pokemon Go. But these things kind of coming together, um, we think, makes the market ripe for a new disruptive play from the likes of Apple, just similar to what it did with smartwatches. Um, and I guess we're looking more practically in the sense that um, we think that smart glasses may actually be a substitute for uh, regular glasses and could actually be quite disruptive to the optometry industry, uh, much like it has been in the, in the, in the, in the watch industry. So um, we, we think that there is a potential there, particularly as consumers are becoming much more dependent on their digital devices and are looking to accessorize wherever they can. Okay, that's very interesting, folk. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Graham. Well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. You can read Comms Day every day by taking a subscription at www.commsday.com. See you next time.